Welcome to the Burden and Blessing Podcast, a study and discussion forum on the truth of God's Word. Our Bible study series examines a specific part of God's Word of Truth. We pray that through this study your faith will be built up and you will grow in your knowledge and understanding of God's Word through what you hear. Welcome back to Burden and Blessing. My name is Nathaniel Mayhew, and you are joining us for our ongoing study of the Psalms. We have been taking this through chronologically, starting with the oldest of the Psalms, the first of those recorded in the Old Testament, and working our way through as they were written or recorded. We are in the early period of the life of David, as David was called by the Lord and and asked to serve him. So we are picking up with Psalm 5 today. This takes us back most likely earlier on in the ministry of David. This psalm is a little bit harder to date because there aren't any specific historical references, but uh, sometimes we find this earlier on in the psalms. Joining me once again to go through our study of the psalms is Pastor Neil Radical. Neil, Psalm 5 today is before us. Any introductory thoughts? So Psalm 4 is an evening prayer, and I always thought that was interesting that the psalm was listed before Psalm 5, which is more of a morning prayer. And so I always thought, well, why would you put the morning prayer first? And it struck me as we go through psalms like this is it kind of bookends our, our slumber and our sleep, our rest, and really comes back to before we go to bed at night, we want to think about our prayers of leaving it all with the Lord as we wake up in the morning, which I think this psalm does such a good job introducing this idea of what do we do first thing in the morning and how does this psalm reflect on how we pray to God when we get out of bed, which I'm not perfect at doing. I'd like to improve on that, and that's why I'm super glad we're going through this psalm today. You mentioned uh, evening and then morning. It makes me think of Genesis there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. And and that's kind of the way the Jews focused on it too, didn't it? Their their day began at 6 p.m. and then went, you know, through the 6 p.m. the next day. So there is this weird we're not used to this in the in our American mind because we think of starting in the the morning hours, but they actually started in the evening hours as far as their day went. And and as you pointed out, Neil, the aspect of prayer is always connected i mean almost always connected to the psalms it's a it's the prayer book of the old testament but this psalm in particular has an emphasis on prayer doesn't it why don't you why don't you get us started in the first couple of verses and and introduce the prayer aspect of the psalm okay so we're looking at psalm 5 the holman christian standard bible and you want me to read the first how many verses you think maybe let's go maybe the first eight verses Okay. Or for six, either one. Sure. For the choir director with the flutes, a Davidic psalm. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighing. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For I pray to you at daybreak, Lord, you hear my voice. At daybreak, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your presence. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors a man of bloodshed and treachery. But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple 
and reverential awe of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. Well, I'll tell you what, the first thing that comes to my mind as I hear you read that psalm is, I'm so glad that's not me. What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a lot of times people will read a psalm like that and they'll, they'll say that, right? But, you know, you look at these verses, you are a God who does not delight in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell within you. And you think, oh, you know, I'm pretty good. Boy, I'm, I'm glad that that doesn't talk about me but it does doesn't it it hits it hits me square in the face when when you realize the boastful cannot stand and and a lot of times we key in on those words boastful and and evil and we say well i'm not so bad but david points out here that he is included in that idea of evil and wickedness and the person who's doing things that he shouldn't be doing we know david's life and we know our own lives we realize oh if i'm really honest with myself i am in that category aren't i where do you see david say that like where where do you think he's making that point like i am also wicked in the word but in verse seven because he goes through all of this and he points out the holiness of god you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell within you. The boastful cannot stand in your presence. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and treachery. If you think about David's life, (laughs) now this could be early on in his life, but think about bloodshed, treachery, or Uriah. Boy, I mean, there wasn't too much more treacherous than that, was there? (laughs) His, one of his own men and turning him over in order to protect himself. But then he goes on, but I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. I think it's just beautiful that David doesn't get out of this by saying, I'm pretty good. He admits, I'm a part of that group that God despises. He hates, but... I enter your house because not of who I am, but because of who you are, God. I think that is just so powerful. I like that you mentioned that it could be later on in his life, but I know we have this listed early on. I think I like I think there are some good textual evidences that would lead us to lead me to believe that it might be earlier on. When he talks about pleading my case to you, I like the way the Holman Christian Standard Bible translated that verse as far as the Hebrew goes, because I know in the New King James it says that I will direct my prayer towards you. I'll direct it to you and I will look up. And what I like about that plead my case is that right before that in verse two, we've talked about before about David's boldness and telling the Lord, listen to my words, consider my sighing, pay attention to me, hear my voice in verses one, two, and three. But when he says, I plead my case to you, he says, my King and my God in verse two. And what I find interesting about that, which again, why I think it might be earlier, if you think of Saul hunting down David, we know that David honored him as the Lord's anointed, but he really wasn't David's king in the sense that, I mean, think about it. Was Saul behaving like David's king? No, he was trying to put him to death. He was trying to kill him. And so he says, the Lord is my king and my God. And it's interesting to me that as he's pleading his case, as you start out by saying with verses four and five, I totally agree that I am not worthy of your mercy or love, 
But now he's making this case. He's pleading to the Lord, his king. He's pleading to his king as God. You have to watch out for me throughout this day. I'm going to fail. I'm going to make mistakes. You're going to abhor the evil in my life. But like you said, it really gives that connection with the gospel. But I'm going to look to you for mercy and strength. And I'm glad that you brought up those first two verses. I kind of skipped over the first three verses and you brought us back to that. Listen, consider, pay attention to, hear, plead my case. I watch expectantly. And I, I do think that this is one of the reasons why this psalm comes earlier on, because it does fit nicely into that period of David's life where he was being hunted by Saul for no good reason. From a, from one perspective, David was... I, I always use the word innocent lightly because none of us are completely innocent, but it's kind of like Joseph, you know, you talk about Joseph, you know, being abused by his brothers in Genesis, but you know, he, he said a few things that might've stirred up his brothers just a little bit too, but this idea of pleading my case. And, and as we go on our next couple of Psalms 59 and 56 are going to get into some of that history with Saul very clearly where Saul was after him, hunting him down. And so this idea of pleading my case, I think does fit early fit well early on in David's life. Well, I, I like the idea of watching expectantly. So mm-hmm. what a great way to start the morning. Okay, Lord, I'm praying that I would honor you with all I say and do today, that I would work hard, that I would be diligent with my family. We talked about that in previous Psalms that we've studied so far. And that idea of watching expectantly. I know you and I have studied Habakkuk before, and it just reminds me of Habakkuk 2 verse 1, where he is praying to the Lord and waiting for the Lord's response. And he says in 2.1, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. And like you mentioned before, this is such a, a heavy psalm to start your morning with, with the, the looking towards the correction of the Lord because of how he hates sin and wickedness. We're expecting throughout the day today, you know, we're, we're doing our psalm study earlier in the morning and yeah, the Lord is going to need to correct us. And I think he's doing that through his word once again today. So how do you, I got a question for you then. How do you handle this heavy law in the sense of how would you apply this to yourself? You talked about that a little bit more like, okay, but it says that in verse six, the Lord abhors a man of bloodshed and treachery. And that I know we talked about before we looked at that word, abhor is abomination. And that's a pretty heavy word used. So how could you or I use this law section or words like that against ourselves? Well, this this entire section deals with judgment. And one of the first things that jumped out to me in this psalm was the fact that it is declaring God to be holy and just. I mean, that's really clear. He does. He hates evildoers. He cannot stand this. And that abhorrence has this idea of judgment. And so one of the neat things for me as I look at this verse, Neil, is to realize that, and we're going to get into that just a little bit more in the next couple of verses, 9 and 10 in particular, when we take a look at the use of, of our tongues in a good or in a negative sense. But God did carry his judgment out against my sin, but he put it on Christ. Christ bore my sin at the cross of Calvary. And what we need to realize when we see during the Lenten season, we see Jesus there on the cross. We need to realize that God poured out all of his hatred, his anger, his wrath upon my sin on Jesus. 
Jesus bore it all. Nothing left. And, and that is a very humbling and it's an eye-opening realization to see that Jesus wasn't just bearing the physical agony there on the cross, but he was bearing the, the judgment of God, the abhorrence of God against not just my sin, but the sin of the world. That's what Jesus was, was carrying. That fits so well with verse seven, as you highlighted that. But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. You know, exceedingly abundantly more than we've ever asked. Isn't that Ephesians? I could be wrong with the reference. Right, yep. But that whole idea of I'm going to enter your house. And one thing I'm envious of the Old Testament people, I know they had a lot of regulations and civil uh, ceremonial laws to follow, but they were sacrificing morning and evening there's something about that, you know, that David hints on on here. I'm going to enter your house in the morning for the morning sacrifice, and it's going to set my day right. And he makes mention of that in verse 8. Lord, lead me in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. I just, I love the, the discipline, the spiritual discipline of believers in Old Testament time. Obviously, we can do the same thing, but it just, it kind of makes me envious of them that they had such spiritual discipline. Not that we can't, but as a collective group, they're very spiritually disciplined. And it's amazing to me that they would fall into waywardness with other idolatry and so forth. But we know that a lot of that's because of their surroundings and uh, because they weren't thinking and their attitude wasn't in the right place when they were worshiping, but right. Yeah. And like you said, you know, we have the opportunity to do that in our busy worlds, sadly, I mean, it used to be if you go back 300 years, 400 years, 600 years, there was a whole lot more spiritual discipline and people were gathering together. For example, churches were open every day of the week in the morning and evening for people to have morning prayer and evening prayer. We've lost a little bit of that from the corporate aspect, like you're talking about. We still have the ability to open up our Bibles at home like we are doing this morning and gather around his word and study it. But it is different. The corporate aspect has been largely lost as a result of the busyness of our society. And so you're right, there is something to envy in, in all of that. And, and maybe even to, to try to bring back again uh, because of the value of it in, in one way or another. And I just wanna make another comment to it. Verse seven, we talk about, I bow down toward your holy temple. You know, if, first of all, I think of the Muslims who might bow down towards the Mecca but this idea of honoring a place, honoring the temple, it's not that far off. Not that we should bow down towards Jerusalem because we know the Lord dwells everywhere, but that idea of bowing down in humility because of the law that we just read about that you're really showing so clearly verses four, five, and six, that's that humbleness before our King. Even though we're talking about Kings like Saul and David, these Kings are bowing down as men. You know, David was, already anointed at this point in time. Saul was very jealous of him, more than likely already anointed at this point in time. And Saul was very jealous. Well, yeah, he would have been already anointed. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think all this really ties so well together about what the Lord hates, watching for the Lord's response. Do you want to lead us into the next verses? Unless you have any other comments on that. I don't want to get going too fast here. No, that that's fine. I think that's a good transition. So nine to the end of the of the book or the chapter here, if you want to call it a chapter nine and 10, these two verses are going to highlight. Well, all of these verses are going to highlight the use of our tongue, but nine and 10 are going to highlight that the negative use of the, our tongue, 
whereas 11 and 12 are going to deal with the positive use of our tongue. So it's something to kind of keep an eye out for as we read through these next four verses. So I'll read 9 to 12. First of all, the negative use. For there is nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. And then comes the positive, verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them and may those who love your name boast about you. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. So I just love this. We were talking about the law and the gospel earlier. And when we really understand how God has, what he has done with our sin that he has not imposed that upon us, but rather he has sent Jesus as our substitute to bear the sin of the world, then there's a natural question that we have. What am I going to do in response? How am I going to use my tongue knowing what I know now? And so you have this, this highlight between the, the positive and the negative, and the negative really takes us back to what we are by nature, sadly. There's nothing reliable in what they say. I mean, <laughs> you think about the Ten Commandments, and we like to, sadly, as human beings, we like to highlight a couple of them. You know, we maybe the Sixth Commandment. You know, and we want to elevate those, and those are the most serious of the of the of the sins against the commandments in our in our minds many times. But I've always felt that of all of the all of the commandments, the second table in particular. The easiest one to fall into, as James says, is the ones that deal with our tongue, the Eighth Commandment, not speaking as we should toward our neighbor or, or ruining our neighbor's good name and reputation. There's nothing reliable in what they say. In fact, just yesterday, uh, my two sons who have been home from school were in the backyard playing and about 10 minutes into it, you know, one of them comes in and starts saying, well, so-and-so was lying about me. And, you know, he's a, he's a liar. And I said, well, okay, now what do you mean by he's a liar? Do you know that he's a liar? Or are you just, you know, saying, well, he lied. And I said, well, he, he said it was true. I said, well, he might really think it's true. It doesn't make him a liar. So there's this natural inclination that we have as human beings to put down other people, to say things that aren't really true. And, and the result, David says, is destruction, rebellion. It, it's not a good thing. And so this, these verses here really key in on the Eighth Commandment and, and how God wants us to use our tongues. James is really good about highlighting, you know, the perfect man is the one who is able to completely control his, his lips, his tongue. And I, we all have that problem, don't we, Neil? I think I love the way you brought in the whole idea of the negative use of the tongue and the positive use of the tongue. And I think when you talk, when you talked about the unrighteous, we are right there with them because we are not righteous. We are not holy. You know, I think of James three, it talks about the not being able to bridle the tongue. And then also we, we haven't done the Psalm yet, but Psalm two speaks about the, the leaders of the world. Psalm two says the Kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, 
let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their courts from us. So you get this idea of leaders like kings, like Saul, like David, using their tongues for evil and not for in the way that David is confessing here. This is not how we should be talking here, which makes sense. Because if you're again, you're in the temple in the morning, what are you praying for? Well, Lord, use my tongue to praise your name throughout the day. Doesn't James 3 say out of the same mouth, blessing and cursing comes, and this should not be, my brethren. And so you, you think about how James could be thinking of this psalm as he's writing that by inspiration of the Lord. So my question for you too here as, as we close down this section, verses 11 and 12, why do you see the joy and rejoicing of David after making such a long confession? Well, this is really interesting. There's almost this, well, in, in Hebrew, we call it a chiasm where there's a flip-flop. But it starts off with listen, consider, pay attention to, hear my voice, plead my case, you know, all of this. And, and David says, I'm watching expectantly. Well, now throughout the development of the psalm, we've seen that God has delivered that. He says, yes, I am going to go into the temple. I am going to bow down in reverential awe. And so he points out here that the proper use of our tongue is not to break the eighth commandment, but rather it takes us to the second commandment. We should not misuse the name of God, but we should use it for prayer, for praise, and for giving of thanks. And it, you've got this beautiful summary. Let all those who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. Not for a short period of time, but forever. And then he says that they may boast about you. What a beautiful use of the tongue, the positive use of the second commandment. This is why God has given us his word, why he has given us his name, that we might come to him in praise, rejoicing, that we would shout for joy, realizing what we have received through Christ's death on the cross. And then we take it out with us into the world and we boast to the world about what we have received. And the one thing that comes to my mind, Neil, with all of this especially verses 11 and 12, and then maybe even going back to verses one and two, is the example of Jesus, who so regularly in the gospels gave his disciples an example of prayer and praise, where he would go up into the mountains and find some secluded place to pray, or on Monday, Thursday evening in the garden of Gethsemane, taking his troubles to the Lord, turning it over to him and saying, I am going to watch expectantly because I know you will answer. And so we have a, I think we have a beautiful, we know we have a beautiful example in, in the person of Jesus, in his life and, and how he used the name of God and the second commandment in a way that we should also imitate in our own lives. So that's a beautiful reminder that ties us again into the New Testament as well. Well, and you mentioned Jesus. I know you have listed there, Mark chapter 135, where in the morning, Having risen, risen a long while before daylight, Jesus went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. So a specific example of what you just said that you see throughout the Bible. And then we also talked about 1 Peter 3.12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What a great summary of this psalm. I mean, that is such a powerful verse. And the one thought that I, I wanted to share as we close down here with our discussion and study is from verse 12 when we look at this psalm we might think man there's not a lot of gospel here it's really heavy but you've already drawn out so much of thinking about christ and 
for me, I was really thinking in verse 12 where it says, for you, Lord, bless the righteous one. But really specifically where he says, you surround him with favor like a shield. I was curious what that word favor was. And it can also be translated goodwill. And the first thing I hope that your mind goes to, Nathaniel, is Christmas when the angels speak to the shepherds, goodwill toward men, peace, goodwill toward the world. You mentioned about the word going out to the world and this favor of God has surrounded the world like a shield to those who put their hope and trust in the Lord, in Christ our Savior. And so I love the idea, you know, you could think of Psalm 46 and so many other Psalms we're going to study about being surrounded with the Lord's protection, but his favor is that goodwill, mercy, that peace that we don't deserve. And that's so that word out of this entire Psalm, favor, for me just sticks out like this, not sore thumb, but wonderful I don't even know how to describe it. It's just, it just stands out as just a favorable word in a not so favorable Psalm to start your morning with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I love the tie into Christmas. I brought out Lent earlier and you bring in Christmas. And that's one of the neat things about the studies of the Psalms is that they point us to Christ. That was, that was what their purpose was. Just like our hymnal today, it points us to Christ and what God has done for us this hymnal of the Old Testament does the same thing. They were waiting for the Christ to come. And so you point out goodwill toward men, peace on earth. This is what Jesus brings to us. We see the death of Jesus on the cross as he atones for the sins of the world. And he is the one who through his death and through his resurrection assures us that the victory has been won. And we now have the privilege of standing, standing before God in holiness, Christ's holiness, and knowing that he will hear our prayers for Christ's sake, who is now at the right hand of the Father. It really brings in nicely the whole Apostles' Creed and what we confess every Sunday. So a beautiful psalm. Again, uh, it's hard to find one that isn't. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. Thank you for the study. I always enjoy going through these with you. Absolutely, and I do too. Hopefully this has been, again, a an encouragement and comfort to all of you who are joining Neil and I for our ongoing study of the Psalms. Again, we kind of hope that you're picking up your Bibles as you go along with us and highlighting things and underlining things and jotting in cross-references as we go along, since this is intended to be a, a more um, interactive Bible study type podcast. So we're hoping that you're able to use it in that way, or even if you're just traveling down the road and benefiting from it, that's fine too. We pray that you'll continue to return and join us for our ongoing, what do we have, uh, four down now and 146 to go. So Years of study. <laughs> that's right. We, we have a lot more coming yet. We're looking forward to it. The Lord bless your week. We'll look forward to having you back with us again next time. We hope that you will join us again next week for another episode of Burden and Blessing Podcast as we continue to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Until next time, take confidence in your Savior's promise that he will always be with you, even to the end of the world.